0: intellectual musings. Matt and I talk to an anarchist about politics, aesthetics, and anthropology. Phil takes us on a trip
1: to the past with the HMS Beagle and shows us that even chess champions can be beaten. Just not by a
0: human. Woman, woman, tell me your name. Let me have my life free. Hey everyone, welcome to today's episode of Semi-Intellectual Musings. I'm uh, Philip Primo and I'm joined by my co-host,
1: Matt Sanderson.
0: And we have someone with us uh, today. Matt, can you introduce our guest for the day? I'm very privileged to be joined
1: by a pedestrian guest named, uh, a good friend of mine named Evan. Uh, he's been brought up on the show before, and we thought uh, we'd have him in to uh, join us on the podcast.
0: So for all our new listeners, welcome. Uh, we really appreciate the time that uh, we get to spend with you. Uh, this is Semi-Intellectual Musings, the podcast that uh, talks about social science, humanities, and arts. Uh, we do it in uh, through uh, book reviews. We do it through interviews like we're going to do today. Uh, we also just kind of do it through... Um, w- what do they call this? Bantering, I think was, was the word? Yes,
1: bantering. Yes, that's what we're supposed to be doing here. So banter, Evan. Say hello yeah. to everybody.
2: Hey, gang. Nice to join
0: you today. Uh,
2: Long-time listener, first-time uh, talker, so great to be here. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you on, Evan. Um, Matt, what's uh, what's new in your world uh um, I'm still uh,
1: still waiting to uh, look after my cousin's kid, actually. So I'm still in a state of nervousness. So uh, I don't know. That's pretty much it.
0: I- I've heard through the grapevine that you've been reading lots of uh, how to how to care for baby books and watching YouTube videos. And um,
1: I actually have not. Um, so um, that is what is adding to uh-oh. this nervousness. Yeah, I gotta <laughs> okay. be gotta be honest. Um, as I mentioned on the previous episode, um, I went for a training run. So uh,
0: tomorrow is the the actual crash course. So we'll oh, great. Yeah. Uh so maybe you've been able to hear a little bit of a difference. Uh we're not recording in our regular oh, right. uh, studio area. We're we're over at Matt's house today. Uh and we're actually sitting in what will be the baby's room. Yeah, this is the uh this is the baby's room. Um
1: I don't know what I painted the walls. And that's a, very exciting. But uh, Evan, what, what do you describe? What, what can you see here? Describe yeah, what you well, see.
2: I'd say there's blankets everywhere, which is a good start. There's a, a lovely crib over here in the corner, um, in case I need to take a nap later.
0: I look forward to that. <laughs> it looks cozy. Yeah, and the the walls are like this uh, nice uh, bluish, but like almost greenish blue. Um, yeah, I feel like I'm mildly sick at sea. <laughs> i hope that's not what's coming out of your uh, system we'll, we'll, what is up on the wall we'll see what comes out of the baby system yeah no kidding we're gonna have some uh some splatter <laughs> so as you can tell uh the show is uh kind of lighthearted. we don't take ourselves too seriously a little bit on the whimsical side um i'm gonna kick us off today um with a couple this is something new but i, I i'm gonna try it out this is um this day in history so uh, by the time this podcast will air, it will have been, uh, or it will be uh, May 11th. Um, Matt, do you know, uh, probably not, but if I say the year 1820 to you, May 11th, 1820, does it, does that day ring a bell for you? No, it does not. No, fell. it does not. Okay. Well, <laughs> um, so for everyone, May 11th, 1820, the HMS Beagle. So the ship that took Charles Darwin on his voyage launched from Woolwick Dockyard on the River Shame Thames. Well now alone that that's kind of like a you know whatever he like the ship left ship leaves dock every day right but it, here's another interesting one may 11th 1997 now does that day ring a bell for, for anyone
1: mm. 97 i don't know i was in like grade 10 i think yeah
2: yeah i was
0: uh I was I was learning to speak around then i think i was, oh, I was wow. a late bloomer <laughs> oh a late bloomer all right well uh, may 11th 1997 deep blue Beats Gary Kasparov. Oh no! Three and a half totally to two and a half, half in chess. Oh yeah. man! Yeah. So it was the first time that an artificial intelligent machine beats, under professional conditions, a professional chess player.
1: Okay. So when you saw that, Phil, like, what did you think that entailed for the future? Like, do you think did you think at that time that this was you know Terminator Two? We're all going to be controlled by robots, or going to be smarter than us?
0: Well, I find it quite interesting that Charles Darwin. Well the, well, the boat that Charles Darwin would have left on left on the same day that a computer beat a, you know, a human many years later. Hey. Charles Darwin, who obviously developed the theory of evolution um, and, oh, you know, for on that voyage. Oh. Yeah, that's an interesting linkage there. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was.
2: Yeah.
1: No kidding. That's the, that's the thing with Phil. You always have to look for those linkages. He's always trying to slip something like that <laughs> well, in so there. Some,
0: something's in yeah. there. Yeah there's, yeah. there's something going on. May 11th, yeah. <laughs> day of progress. Or regress. Oh, whoa.
2: Or regress, yeah. Who, yeah, regress yeah, because for thinking of now. the
1: ways they've used evolutionary theory in, for nefarious means, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And right. it also kind of
0: picks up a little bit on our uh, trail of Marx that we kind of left. Yeah. You know, Marx who who, who would have read uh, much of Darwin's work.
2: Mm.
1: We're all mm. trying to progress to the socialist
0: utopia, right? Well, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Through
2: <Your> computer <laughs> chess, interesting linkage there. Yeah. yeah.
0: Mm. So, anything new in the world of Evan? Um,
2: yeah, not very much. I uh, let's see. I'm just just living right now. I uh, you know working in a library, trying to read as many books as I can. I uh, when I'm shelving, I'll slowly you know look or peek at the introductions to a bunch of things, which is awesome. You get to learn a lot of things that you wouldn't see otherwise that way. But uh, yeah, just trying to keep busy, getting around to things that
0: I haven't gotten to. Do you have any interesting library stories that you can share with us?
2: Ooh, well, none. None are uh, very interesting. It's a very, very dull place for the most part. Though on my my first day, I I worked there a long time ago, and then I left, and I came back, and I'm just getting in the swing of things. So, sitting there at the front desk, and my first patron walks up, and I felt really good about you know my ability to handle this. And uh, he walks up, and I'm like, "How can I help you?" And the first thing he says is. Call me an ambulance. I'm going to be outside. Oh. And so he walks outside and we, we chase him down, of course, and get him a seat. It turns out he'd just been, uh, it was his birthday the night before and he was up all night just overdosing on cocaine and GHB no. and all kinds of drugs. So he came to the library for God knows what reason the next well, day. Probably where I would have went. <laughs> Didn't work well for him. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I need was...
1: to find a medical dictionary pl- stat. <laughs> <laughs> Something to diagnose what I'm feeling right now,
0: please.
2: <laughs> yeah, self help.
1: <laughs> yeah. Has the uh, smell of the library gotten to you yet?
2: Uh, yeah, no, no, it's it's pretty normal for me now. I think I've, I've pretty much imbibed it, so I uh, probably give off a good stench of uh, book dust now as you uh, sit so close to me.
1: Do you do you think the um, the the smell sticks with you? Like, like I find that Burger King is the stinkiest fast food. Like, if you eat a Whopper, it's going to stick to your hands. Um, do you find that the library follows you home?
2: Yeah, well, there's definitely a lot more dust in my day to day life than I'd like to think uh, occurs naturally. So. There's uh yeah yeah
0: there's definitely a lot of like particles that follow you around, and uh, so maybe this is just in Phil's imaginary. But uh, do people like live between the stacks sometimes at libraries? There's some interesting characters there. It's not the people you'd expect
2: either. There's uh, there's one guy who's uh, you know of Middle Eastern descent, and he's you know a big local celebrity with all the uh, Arabic folk in the library. And my goodness, does that man ever spend a lot of time in the library. He's there every day, all day. I've never seen him study once, never seen him crack a book or a laptop. But he is outside smoking, cajoling, meeting, greeting. This man is a local celebrity. So it's like the social hangout. Yeah. Yeah, you never know who's going to be there. There's some weird, weird folks around. Oh, that's great. We had one guy who, um, I don't think he went to Carleton, but he... uh, he would stay on the, uh, the third floor by the computers, and we found out eventually that he's, uh, he's a not-so-famous pornography author. Oh. His name's Porno Steve. He's got well over 100 titles on Amazon that you can find. Like, mostly, like uh... books? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, like pornographic literature. And they're all about a young man at Carleton University whose sexual horizons are awakened oh. by a young woman from uh, you know, somewhere in the world. Oh, wow. <laughs> Ottawa you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, not too <laughs> out there. Well, that's... Uh more interesting than
1: I thought it would be. (laughs) Yeah. You know,
0: libraries are always an interesting place. Um, I've never had a dull moment at a library. uh, No, like (laughs) seriously. No, no. Like, so from the moment you walk in, you're either presented with problems, can't find the book I'm looking for. The book is misshelved somewhere. Or if you do find the book, then you start reading it and you're like, oh, damn, it's not the book I wanted. So then you go on a massive manhunt for a new book. But then if you do get the book you want and you go down, there's inevitably a problem checking it out. Like, oh, yeah. like their bar, barcode won't scan, you have overdue fines, so you can't leave the place without being harassed. We make
2: it difficult on you. That's, it's really, not
0: by accident. Yeah. We well, need some entertainment. <laughs> oh,
2: I see. So.
1: There was funny. Um, one time Evan sent me a text. It was when I was uh, researching police peacekeeping and PTSD. A few peas there. Um, and he's like, oh man, you really killed us in G350. Because <laughs> it was like the section all on peacekeeping, and I just absolutely pillaged it, and just left them all on that return, like to be shelved later. And I was just oh, like the, the thinking day- of Evan. He's like, w- "Did you do- w- did you just come in here?" Another one was uh, like phenomenology. Like all over the library, like wherever there's anything phenomenology related. Like Evan just knows that I was like through there.
2: The day you finished your master's, we had
0: to call in the reserve troops to do some shelving. That was a, that was a
2: mighty uh, mighty day of shelving.
0: I, I, I will admit, a confession, uh, I have taken stacks of books and then not wanted them and just put them on the shelf somewhere. I know you, there's a procedure you're supposed to put them somewhere, but it's just, I got to leave. I got stuff to do. On
1: the shelves? You don't even put them
0: on that little thing like at the end of the shelf? No, just right on a shelf What a maniac. (laughs) What is wrong with you? (laughs) Uh, And so, and then if I do find a good book and I'm over my limit of what I can take out, I hide it. Hey, yeah, no, that's, uh, you're not alone. Yeah, I do that a lot. Yeah. 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 Yeah, That's a big move for mine. The uh, the film studies section has lots of sociology hidden in it that I, (laughs) like, I I was like a squirrel. I couldn't find it again. So I know I hid it somewhere in there, but. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Gastronomy's got a lot of anthropology as well.
0: That's good, I'm taking note of all these hiding spots now. All right. Well, I think um, I think we're about ready to get on with the show. I want to remind everyone where we're available, uh, where to get in contact with us. Uh, we're on Twitter at the Sim Pod, so the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D. You can email us at semi-intellectual at gmail.com. We have a website. That's thesim.podbean.com. We are on iTunes and Stitcher, so please rate, review, leave us your comments. It really helps um, – I'm I'm am going to be honest. Uh, we got a, a couple great reviews so far from iTunes, and it's you know it's really giving us the motivation to go forward. You know, Matt and I uh, put in quite a bit of effort to to bring you this show twice a week, like we are, uh, with the full show notes and stuff like that. So We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to have more people on the show. Um, so yeah, how about uh, let's get on with the show? Let's do it.
1: And welcome back. Uh, So Evan is on to talk about David Graeber and anarchist anthropology, uh, something that he's talked to me about a few times, but I really don't have a handle on it, and uh, from what Evan tells me, that that is kind of the point. So uh, Evan,
2: take it away. (laughs) Thanks, Matt. So I'd like to preface this with uh, just reiterating the fact that I am uh, by no means an expert in anything. I'm just some guy that Matt pulled on off the uh, street, but I've been... uh, I've self-ascribed as an anarchist for many, many years, but only recently, in recent years, have I uh, come into anthropology as a discipline which I have some real affection for. Um, And so, over the last couple of years, I've been very interested in the intersections between anarchism and anthropology because there seems to be a lot there. You know, um, anthropology, a discipline that's typically held a lot of uh, interest in uh, Marxist-type analysis – uh, it's been going on a while, and it's, it's neat to see um, other spheres of analysis opening up. I think as anthropology has been developing, um, we're seeing more of a horizontal approach, a collaborative approach to how ethnography is conducted. And so, I think anarchism has a lot to tell us about these sorts of horizontal, not top-down approaches to um, you know looking at everyday life and
0: conducting everyday life. So, be before we get into the meat um, of what you have for us, which sounds absolutely fascinating, by the way, um, give us like a 30 seconds. Um, so do you come from an anthropology background, um, scholastically or, you know, what, what have kind of been your influences leading you up into the kind of Marxist anthropology that you're talking to us? Yeah, well, I was,
2: I was always, um, a a continental philosophy guy in my, uh, youth and, you know, I was hopping around, academic disciplines for a long time i couldn't really find anything that was of particular interest uh, it took me a while i dropped out of school for a couple of years worked a couple of real bad jobs that's where Happened i met me uh that's where i met this uh goof off host of yours in fact <laughs> um, he's pointing to matt not me by the way <laughs> yeah but i i mean i was lucky to have done so because he uh he was what were you doing your master's at the time
1: uh PhD, actually. PhD. Yeah, my apologies. Yeah, yeah. yeah so. How dare you?
2: <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, he uh, he pretty much strong-handed me into uh, taking one of his uh, the courses that he's TAing, and it it became a uh, a real passion of mine.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of funny. we were working at that uh, crappy job together, and uh, yeah, as uh, was TAing Anthro 100, and I uh, I was able to finagle him into uh, into my tutorial group, and it was kind of fun. It was like having a um, like a teacher review every single tutorial. I think I only asked for his feedback a couple of times because I was like, whoa, <laughs> that's a little real. But uh, yeah, it was really helpful because um, one thing that he, he said to me um, was that I teach in a discursive manner. Um, and whoa, whoa, whoa,
0: whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean by discursive manner?
1: Um... Well, the way I am on this podcast, jumping from topic to topic, and uh, the opposite of what Phil is, making all the connections.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, Evan, uh, did you really mean chaotic?
2: Yeah, um, in a sense. In a sense, (laughs) I find all good teaching evolves in a similar way, or not all good teaching, certainly, but a lot of good teachers, I find, have too many thoughts popping around at once, and they, they don't necessarily tie together explicitly. But what's really interesting about Matt's style of teaching is that he'll... Throw things out there that don't necessarily link in the moment, but eventually they all kind of commingle in the brain, and, and certain uh, connectors happen, and some don't. But uh, I think everybody can take away their own stuff from it, which is really neat.
1: It's funny. I, it's almost like I'm uh, like my brain is like opened up, and like that's how I think. Where it's like. Honestly, like this is a little bit real, but like um, there's a lot of like jumbled up thoughts when I'm thinking, right? And the connections come at the darndest times. I know it's the way with everyone, like when you're taking a shower, all of a sudden you got your thesis statement or whatever. But with me, it's, um, it is it is kind of jumbled around. But um, after you said like I, I teach in like a dis- more of a discursive fashion, then I started bringing like structure, right? And trying to make those connections more clear, um, slowing down. All those things, like it was like just a smallest piece of feedback, but it completely changed the way that I taught. Yeah. So thank you, Evan. That's you cool. asshole. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I was joking. Let's not insult the guest. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. He's my buddy. You said oh, it, yeah. <laughs> All
0: right. Um, so Evan, you were talking about uh, some continental philosophy, uh, easing your way into anthropology. Um, how do those things connect uh, in your mind to make um, something that looks like anarchist anthropology?
2: That's a a good and tricky question. Um, I'd say the uh, the anarchism came earlier uh, alongside continental philosophy. Um, there was, uh, where did that lead from? I guess there was a good few months there where I was deep into Marxism as a as a young, as a youth. And uh, eventually that led to a, a, a disaffectation or disaffection with um, the kind of top-down approach. And I was a big fan of Lenin and then suddenly I started reading a lot of Lenin. He became a little bit uh, wary of some of the ways he was going about things. So I was looking for alternatives and started reading some Proudhon, reading some uh, Kropotkin, and that stuff really appealed at the time. So that kind of, in a sense, was independent from continental philosophy and other things, like a, interest in Schopenhauer, interest in Merleau-Ponty, but that, a lot of the Merleau-Ponty connections that I, I made with Matt were uh, what talked me into uh, thinking about anthropology in a new light.
0: So it seems like you've uh, been approaching Marxism and anthropology um, a little less through like the labor studies of Marx, and perhaps a little bit more through like the ground level uh, experience of uh, capitalism, or experience that uh, laborers could have. Uh, Would you label that as kind of about what what you're yeah reading? I, I think that's a great point i uh, i
2: definitely thought when i was you know 16 i was going to lead a revolution in china someday it doesn't matter that i didn't speak
1: chinese but, <laughs> but Slow yeah down, I, now. <laughs> that, that, you know when you're 16 that doesn't matter like
0: you just you, yeah, i
1: thought i'd teach them that they were uh, yeah you can't course. tell but evan does not wear glasses so he would
0: uh, survive mouse purchase <laughs> <laughs> and 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 i think a lot of people thought that too i don't think you're alone
2: yeah well like, i mean my uh, my friends and uh and and cohabitants in school definitely uh, thought I was pretty annoying from that, I'm sure. <laughs> but
1: how how old were you when you got dissatisfied with or disaffected by Marx, would you say?
2: I'd say it started uh, you know, how old was I? Fifteen, sixteen was when I, I started turning trying to turn away from it in in active ways. But uh I mean it's always been an interest of mine you know especially working those those menial uh, low wage jobs a lot of it seems to resonate and I just again I just recently took a, a, another refresher course in Marx and a lot of my experiences it was interesting to read the Marx through those experiences rather than the other way around
1: Yeah that's um that's how I would always that's how I understood Marx was working jobs where I felt like I was alienated Exactly right, yeah, right. yeah
0: yeah, yeah. Evan, you brought up the word anarchism. I have brought it up. Uh, Explain to us your kind of definition of anarchism or how would you define anarchism or who would you revert to or refer to to define anarchism?
2: That is a wonderful question and a tricky one to answer. There's been a lot of uh, debate and consternation throughout the, the decades and centuries over that very question. Um, Anarchism's got a long and storied history. It uh, evolved largely in relationship with Marxism, obviously. Um, But it's had a lot of um, resonance on the ground in a a way that um, maybe not in theory. And what's interesting about anarchism, in a sense, is is that it's very much an act of pursuit. David Graeber, um, as we've mentioned before... It goes to great lengths now to make sure we don't call him the anarchist anthropologist, though I think that is an apt descriptor. Um, He uh, he says that he isn't because anarchism is something one does rather than what one believes in or or holds to be true or what have you.
0: So it's a little bit more praxis-driven. Uh, in that sense. Exactly, yep.
2: Yeah,
1: that's just what I was going to say as well. It's, um, it reminds me a lot of how we were talking about Marx on the last episode, actually, where it was an active thing. That's why we were talking about metabolism, right? Um, where it was kind of mind-blowing because we often hear critiques of Marx where it's like it's static and conservative and it's unchanging, um, top-down. But uh, what Phil was offering up was uh, a dynamic and active... Uh, uh, the opposite of static, um, and I think that's that's actually it's well anarchist anthropology therefore sounds like it's well suited for anthropology because anthropology is like lived experience and active of sort of theorizing in the moment.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Um, James C. Scott, who is a, a professor at Yale. Um, talked at length in in one of his books. He's an academic, obviously, but he wrote this really interesting book called Two Cheers for Anarchism, which is uh, not exactly an academic-style book. He's trying a new approach, which is um, what he calls vernacular. And he speaks a lot to vernacular orders in the book, uh, what they are in relation to, um, you know, static or top-down approaches. And I I think that's one of the really interesting things about both anarchism and anthropology is that they offer very much um, horizontal or, or... you know, not top-down approaches to these. Uh, sorts could you of things. could
0: you unpack that notion a little bit more of a, like a vernacular approach to to understanding? Uh, I guess relationships is is what he's after. Yeah, relationships and all sorts of things. One of one of his great
2: examples is um, uh, speaking about gardens. He uh, he talks about a garden uh, in Guatemala, and he's he calls it a vernacular garden, I believe. Um, but he he has lovely diagrams in the book which explain uh you know how the placement of things in not obvious ways according to how they best grow, leads to the greatest yield, which is not necessarily the uh the efficiency model that we 've come to expect through uh you know neoliberal capital market styles mm-hmm. uh, He talks about how Henry Ford, when he tried to um buy a a slate of the uh Brazilian rainforest the size of Connecticut to grow rubber thinking that he could produce all the rubber he would need for his tires. he uh, it, it was an abysmal failure because he can't grow rubber just in plantation style. It, it has to grow where it will and here and there. And so as illustrative of the sense of a vernacular approach, I think that, that was a lovely example. He's also got the idea of, um, you know, along his college campus, there are these pavement paths you know, between buildings and all that. But it's interesting, the, uh, the little paths that grow, you know, which, what I'm oh, talking yeah, about, like the little yeah. paths that people walk yeah. constantly enough, yeah, that yeah, grass, stops grass to grow. Yeah. 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 And he was saying, I forget where it was. It may have been at Yale, it may have been elsewhere, but they took the approach of watching where those developed and then paving over them eventually instead of, uh, you know, preordaining paths.
1: Huh. And, like, would you say, like, do you know what emergent theory is? Like, where it's, um, your theory comes from the people that you're working with. So, it, that's kind of like a hallmark of anthropology. Like, we try not to go in with this wide theoretical framework, because once we start talking to the people, we usually just throw it out the window and have to start from scratch anyway. So, most theorizing in anthropology comes from the people. Would you say anarchist approach um, in its unstructured, unfiltered sort of way? is well suited for anthropology
2: so yeah that's that's a great point and i, th- I think david graber um, speaks to something like that when he's talking about the differences between marxism and anarchism in a, a little book of his called fragments of anarchist anthropology it's the only book on the subject like explicitly on the subject that i've found yet uh, i haven't done an exhaustive search mind you just through the library and apparently most of the books that are missing so who knows but um he talks about
0: how...
1: <laughs> like some anarchists <laughs> not following the rules, eh? I love that. You, you know, there the... is a
0: technique to get the books out of the library. <laughs> I
2: assume they're in the television section somewhere. Um, but yeah, he, he talks about how it's very important in anarchism that there should be no high theory of anarchism, that it is very much um, vernacular or... Uh, sorry, what was the word he used again there? Uh, emergent. Emergent. See, that's why I'm still doing an undergrad here. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, no, I think that's, uh, it's it's brilliantly suited for anthropological interests
0: uh, and vice versa. So the common kind of, um, if you would go out onto the street and ask 10 people, um, give us a definition of anarchism, they would probably give you something else completely than what you've just described to us. Because what you've described to us, what I'm hearing is that um, anarchism is like an organic sort of um Basis to it. It's something that you have to look uh, on the ground at what's happening. It's emergent. It's not top down. You've ne- you haven't used the word politics yet. What it seems to me is that you're actually talking about experience and not political organization. But yet, it seems to me like the, the, the common definition of anarchism is that it's a political unit or it's a political strategy for mobilizing. So, yeah, I think exactly experience should
2: be where politics comes out of and not the other way around. I think that's what we all believe fundamentally is that, you know, lived experience should inform one's political orientation, not the other way around. Um, The way things work best, the way things naturally occur, the way relationships and behaviors uh, happen between people, between friends, that those should be the nodes for uh, political and, and social networks, I think.
1: And um, so you say lived experience a few times, and you know Maddie is going to start picking up on that. Um, is that where the continental philosophy, Merleau ponty comes in, like the Hegel approach, like the sort of lived? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. No, definitely to a degree that that brings me into it for sure. Um, is, is
1: that in, like, Graeber, or is that, like what you read into Graeber? Because I know Phil reads Marx in a completely different way than the so-called textbook reading of Marx would be. So is that something you see in Graeber? Or is that something that Graeber explicitly puts focus on?
2: I mean, it's definitely terminology that exists in the thing, whether it's, it's from a you know, phenomenological perspective or not, that, that can be uh, put to question for sure. But um, I think it's definitely a valid interpretation
0: and, and belongs in there, certainly. So
2: um,
0: kind of two questions. Uh, The first question is, do you call yourself an anarchist? And the second question is, uh, what would be or what could be the anarchist ideal, if there is one? To answer your first
2: question, I I do. And I don't know if it makes any difference to anything I do in the end. (laughs) (laughs) Good answer, good answer. I mean, I, I, it's something that I, I believe in, in dearly. In fact, and I, there's a great quote in one of those Graver books at the beginning that says, "If you're not a utopianist, you're a schmuck." Uh, <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's that a, word, schmuck. It's a great word. It's <laughs> a good it's great That's word. Good word. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you, you gotta, you gotta start from uh, believing that there's a better world out there, and I, I think it, it doesn't necessarily matter that much if I call it, call myself that or not. But I, I think if I ensure that i come start from a point where i am an optimist and i, I believe in, in something uh, that exists but is also a beautiful thing to strive for that's wonderful in terms of the anarchist ideal i think we see it around ourselves uh every day you know it's it, it's an organic uh i'll stop saying that word but it, it exists in all of our social relationships um you know with um, family and friends i think it's increasingly the case uh, these days that uh, Power and violence are behind fewer of our social interactions than they used to be. One doesn't come into contact with the threat of violence in the family as much as one used to. Though obviously it's still prevalent, but it's no
0: longer the f- very backbone of the hierarchy of the family. Yeah, that's uh, picking up on Elias's um, civilization process kind of the- thesis, right? How the more interrelated we are, the less kind of need for violence the- there ends up being. Um, but in terms of how you import this, um, and I'm going to call it like a utopian uh, kind of outlook uh, on life um, into your studies, how, what, what does that look like to interact with people, to interview people? Uh, does it look any different than um, someone who wouldn't call themselves an anarchist would?
2: Well, at this point in my study, unfortunately, I'm still a lowly undergrad, so I, I have not conducted many interviews. It leads to a lot of papers that I think give headache to uh, professors who don't want to read about how this intersects with anarchism again. <laughs> but um, it definitely informs a lot of my uh, my writing anyway. There's like I I've been uh, trying to connect things to um, alternatives to neoliberalism a lot lately. I think Carl uh, Poliani Polanyi is a huge influence on me these days, and I, I'm I'm very interested in what comes out of that, especially.
1: Um, so we'll totally pick up on that neoliberal thing, like me and Phil just got a little bit excited there. Um, but I just wanted to quickly return to this idea, um, like we, like Phil mentioned, um, this doesn't sound like anarchism, right? Um, when we see anarchists on the in the media, they're wearing black, they got their faces covered, and they're smashing like the window to some like shop or whatever in a riot (laughs) there's my dog (laughs) scratching at the door um so i think it's fascinating to think of yourself as an uh optimistic anarchist like an optimistic anarchist so like i wonder if you can like how do you balance the the violence and the political um unrest with the optimism like how how does that come together in your theorizing
2: well i'd say fundamentally i believe most anarchists are optimists um, but there's certainly a diversity of tactics so obviously anarchism is a, a, a thing one does rather than a thing one believes for the most part and so it's very much oriented towards how one conducts direct action um and there's a myriad beliefs about how to go about doing such things you know as like Yabasta yeah is a great example of uh political action which is nonviolent, which i think is wonderful and then there's the far extent of black block tactics, which, uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily uh, find very engaging, but I, I see the symbolic interest. Now, I think fundamentally it comes down to whether or not one's conducting symbolic actions. Are you trying to do this to, uh, to create, you know, art of symbolism or whatever? Or are you trying to actually affect things? And I find the violence has a much more symbolic value than it does anything else, which is not necessarily that productive.
0: Right. So you're kind of um, moving in a direction that I think Matt and I will both appreciate, and I'm, I'm going to call it something, but correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. It has to do with the aesthetics of the practice of anarchism. Um, and there, there's always something that's fascinating me about the justice position between black block tactics. the aesthetic of a black block movement versus, uh, you know, a peaceful protest. And it seems to me that one depends on the other. Um, that in the current ways in which we can practice anor- anarchy or this, you know, anarchist framework, that we kind of need those extremes because without them, it kind of gets diluted a little bit, right? Absolutely, yeah,
2: yeah. No, I, I was just reading something today, in fact, about how uh, anarchists have to be both those people are smashing in the windows and those people who are planting flowers in the uh, planters. Right? Yeah, you gotta you gotta provide both. But it's it
1: scares me to think that uh, people peacefully protesting are being lumped in with anarchists like that is our civil rights and um to to demonstrate and and to me that is adhering completely to social standards like i'm just obeying the law by peacefully demonstrating
0: <laughs> right so what you're saying is just because uh you're mobilized doesn't make you an anarchist
1: yeah exactly
0: i'm not a, i'm not an
1: extremist i'm just a citizen
0: absolutely
2: well if i could take one quick step back from uh the politics of anarchism mm-hmm. for a second, just draw back to anthropology right. for a, 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 just a quick minute. Um, I'd say a, a lot of a lot of people who embrace aspects of anarchism are not card carrying anarchists or self identifiers as as anarchists. Um, Graver's got an interesting point about how Marcel Mauss is, in effect, pretty much an anarchist. <sighs> he's uh, he's a, a socialist for a long time. He believed in affecting change. But uh, unfortunately, his experience with anarchism was colored by uh, some uh, virulent anti-Semite who uh, then later turned fascist, similar to Mussolini. Actually, mm-hmm. there's a huge contingent of those early anarchist uh, socialist types who went off the deep end towards fascism. Mm-hmm. But um, in effect, like he was, he was very much about these sorts of things. And the gift is an actual is a hugely influential book in the uh, the anarchist uh, cosmos, insofar as it describes worlds which are alternatives to uh, to neoliberalism that's
1: uh wow i never would have made that connection i'm a huge marcel mouse fan as you know i think even just name dropped that for me but uh, um no and i'm thinking of the i mentioned on a previous podcast but the techniques of the body where um he basically uh just that he not only provides like a robust new sort of theorizing on the body, like really early on, like it was in the 20s or something, but it's also like how people use their bodies differently and how certain norms that we thought like, this is how you should run. This is how you should do a swimming stroke. Those are completely challenged once you come back from World War One and you see other people swimming better than you and you're like, maybe I should <laughs> swim like that. Yeah, that's very anarchist. I never thought of it like that.
2: It's such an amazing piece that techniques on the body. It affected me a lot too. As, as a young guy, I always felt kind of clunky in my body. Mm-hmm. And so having read that a few years back, it, it really uh, opened my eyes to the uh, the idea of, of bodily performance as, as a learned – Thing, not as something that I was preternaturally, you know, incapable of, <laughs> or that I was just naturally clumsy, but uh, you know that there are these affectations that one takes on and learns and stuff. That that was uh, mind blowing. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's the reason I brought it up a couple of times. It's just as influential for me as well. It's so understandable, and it um, it's one of those great introductory pieces. Um, so. Uh, without further ado, me and Phil are quite excited. Um, how do you see neoliberalism and anarchism being juxtaposed and Plyani? Um If you can bring him in <laughs>
2: somehow as well. So go yeah, for it. Yeah, I can try. Uh, so <laughs> there's obviously a whole host of uh, alternatives to neoliberalism out there that are, that are embraced passionately and, and, and fought for uh, all over the spectrum. And Obviously, the uh, the attempts to commingle are not always fruitful. <laughs> but what I like about anarchism in a, uh, a methodological alternative is that it isn't uh, top down, as I keep saying. The fact that you can come to consensual agreements between people is the fundamental principle of this philosophy. The idea that we can cooperate without positions or structures of power enforcing decisions is entirely possible, as we've seen time and again. You know, I, I spent some time at the Occupy Ottawa protests back in 2011, and it was eye-opening. You know, they disintegrated after a little while, as as one would expect them to do, especially a bunch of people doing it for the first time. But it's eye-opening to see a group of, you know, hundreds of people from disparate disparate communities able to come to consensual decisions without the need for coercive activity. Mm-hmm.
1: And I know that that park uh, later became the hub for three weeks for the Pokemon Go uh, epidemic that was going on in <laughs> a Ottawa in many cities. Yeah. So it's kind of, um, that's an interesting multi-use of the space. And it's the same sort of idea. as bringing people together, uh, even though their faces are buried in the cell phone with Pokemon Go. <laughs> but it's the uh, same thing. They're using a the space in different ways to bring different people together. It's very anarchist, right?
2: That's neat to see. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, different, different types of people brought together, unfortunately, by it. A- a, you
0: know, consumers' platform, but uh, still very, very cool to see this sort yeah, of thing. That too. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to bring us back to some current events because you mentioned uh, the Occupy movement, which happened, you know, not too long in the distant past.
1: God, that was six years ago, man.
0: Well, it was. Well, it was you know, <laughs> Five years ago? It's a, it's a drop six? in the ocean. Yeah. Drop wow. in the ocean. Yeah. Um, but we are having this discussion um, with an interesting kind of historical backdrop Um, We have in the United States for the first time in uh, at least recent uh, memory, a president uh, who is, you know, really pushing forward some uh, atrocious policies on the policy front, some atrocious social policies uh, that, you know, will drastically kind of, I think, uh, you know, if not worsen will definitely impede, uh, people's ability to get healthcare, to, you know, be mobile, all that kind of stuff. And we're also recording this, uh, at a time when France, mm-hmm. uh, has recently, um, came to a decision. So the, the vote re- results are in, um, on that. Um, c- can you talk to us a little bit about what it's like for you to see these sort of things, w- what's going on in your head, um, as we progress? Um, you know, you might be able to throw in Brexit in there as well because I think that might be a big one. <laughs> Let yeah. me just tackle all of right, yeah, politics. you know, <laughs> and about uh, attack the right, minutes. Evan,
1: attack the right. All right,
2: so <laughs> no, the the French one's an interesting one to start off with just yeah. because of uh, the very unpalatable choice uh, available. I was a big fan of uh, what was the guy's name, Mélenchon, on the left, the Trotskyite figure. Um, under, Watch out close. for the
1: ice picks. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, obviously not a not a big Trotskyite proponent as I've been talking about, but just to see leftism as a you know a political orientation coming back into the uh, forefront of of, of uh, political uh, uh, ethos is, is great to see. You know, it, it's nice to see some return to these sorts of figures with the Bernie Sanders and the Mélenchons and even Jeremy Corbyn with his upcoming election. I, it, it's looking pretty bad, but it's nice to see some groundswell right now. Um, opposing, because these right-wing populist forces are incredibly strong right now and propose very convenient answers. And it's hard to avoid, uh, you know, playing to these populist sorts of easy answers while also providing an intellectually sound uh, campaign.
1: So, uh, like, what comes to mind is uh, the fall of the Roman Republic. Um, And I'm wondering, is this the... um, like the death throes of the republic where the where i guess societies in general are making a change and they're they're turning more progressive and turning more inclusive and these are the last like holdouts like and the only reason we think it's such a powerful force is because they're super loud and when the majority of us are actually already turned the page like who talks about gay marriage anymore like, and is it not, like, very strange when you run into, like, a homophobe, like, where you're just, like, out at a par and someone, like, drops, like, oh, that's so gay? It's, like, you just look at me like, what century
2: are you from? It's uncomfortable now. Yeah, yeah the way that it used to be right? just, like, privately uncomfortable now it feels publicly yeah. uncomfortable. But you can
1: respect. do it really loudly on the internet right and this is where a lot of the traction comes from i think
2: well you tell me what you guys think about this but um i'm of the opinion that we're seeing you know kind of the some not the death throes but a very quick downturn of neoliberal uh, market economics
1: yeah i've noticed that too like really recently too yeah
2: exactly and we're we're seeing some real populist outrage against this and Rightly so, I think, you know, people should be angry that this thing which was promised to them as the great salvation, the end of history, whatever, um, is, is really not working out for anybody's benefit.
1: And like when have you when was the last time you actually heard somebody criticize neoliberalism, like especially in the media, like just outright where it's like, yeah, I don't know if the free market is the best solution for this. Uh
2: well you do problem. encoded language though, don't you? Like the Marine Le Pen type mm-hmm. stuff, the Donald Trump stuff. Yeah. You know, end of globalization, shut down the borders, no trade.
0: It's it's interestingly uh Coded, but certainly about neoliberalism, I think. But you brought up a good point that it's a convenient, easy answer uh, that I think appeals to popular sentiment in the short term because people are frustrated. Like, um, you know, exit polls don't show uh, that people at home feel extremely under pressure financially. They feel like they have to do more with less. Uh, they don't necessarily have avenues to be able to discuss their actual opinion. So whereas, you know, they actually are probably not in favor of gay marriage. They don't have an avenue to voice it. And then along comes this right wing kind of movement and we'll call it that movement. (laughs) And I'm doing air quotes, scare quotes. Um, but it allows them to,
1: it's a legitimate movement, man. It's just as legitimate as the movement from the left as well.
0: Well, this is exactly it. And I think, um, you know, I'm going to turn the question over to Evan, but you know, it seems to me like some factions on the left, um, aren 't taking it so seriously they 're not saying it's a, it's a serious yeah, that 's my point and yeah. i haven 't yeah. seen the types of mobilization that would be required to kind of overcome the the the, the kind of popular movement towards the right absolutely well there 's definitely
2: a, a criticism be had that the left is more concerned with aesthetics these days than it is with politi- uh, political direct political action. Uh, there's definitely a need for that, and to be fair, um, there's a, a great amount of of that that's been going on over the last few decades, but which has very little media attention. Uh, reading a book right now by David Graeber, who's the man of the uh, the hour. Please hit us up if you're listening, David. Um, Please. You have
0: like, please, David. Fanboys, all of us. <laughs> we're waiting on you, David.
2: <laughs> but he's got a book called um, Direct Action and Ethnography, and it tells talks about his, his time in uh, Quebec City in 2001, uh, resisting yeah. all those uh, crazy meetings they were having there. Um, and it's really interesting to read about all of these direct action networks and Yabasta and all of these, you know, really interesting, cool anarchist style collective um, resistant networks which do continue to exist in this world Um, so while we don't hear from them as much as we should, they do exist and we can find them
1: Um, I wanted to return to Trump if I could Um, it's interesting (laughs) how like he straddles the line between being an outsider and also being a populist, right? And like how can you be both of those? It seems like it's, I don't know, it's like people think that he understands their struggles but i mean he was born into wealth he inherited his wealth and then he squandered a lot of it um like how does how does he i don't know how does he do that like and and how is it like that seems like it's an anarchist approach as well does it uh, to me it does that's yeah. interesting how do
2: you mean so like it certainly because, seems disorganized i'm not sure if it's an anarchist <laughs> anarchic <laughs> yeah <it's>,
1: yeah archaic <laughs>
2: Maybe.
0: It's um, all those things
1: well just the idea that he cobbled together his entire platform based on um cable news and what he heard from people tweeting at him i guess or however the hell that works like and he's also completely rewritten in a good or bad way, probably bad way, um, the playbook on how you should be presidential. And a lot of people are being like, fuck yeah. Like that guy's just like me. And I remember people saying that about um Barack Obama seems like he was cool. Like you can go hack a butt and play basketball with him or whatever, because I know he did both in the White House. Um George uh, W. Bush, you can go for a beer with him. Like I could bring him out with my buddies. And don't and Bill Clinton, you want to go for a night on the town with him. And the last four presidents are all, like, relatable in a way that presidents shouldn't be relatable, I think.
2: That definitely seems like a trend. I I wonder maybe if if what he's selling more than anything is just how uncouth he is. Mm. With all this ridiculousness about, uh, you know, the neoliberal elites uh, who are rightfully scorned, but the direction of scorn is maybe uh, not always correct. Something about the fact that he has tape on the underside of his tie. Something about the fact that Steve Bannon shops at Mark's Work Warehouse exclusively. Do they even have that in the States? What's the American equivalent? I have no idea.
0: Walmart? I don't even know. Somebody
2: write in anyway. (laughs) Yeah, Target probably. Let us us know what the uh, American equivalent
0: is to basically like a men's discount clothing shop that sells really cheap but yet really useful clothes. But I think Americans oh. want
2: to see somebody with moles on their face. They want to see somebody with tape on their tie. They want to see somebody whose skin looks like it's being held together in the back with like a large clamp.
1: So is um, Justin Trudeau an optimistic anarchist? <laughs> certainly... Because he's also trying to rewrite the playbook on what it means to be prime ministerial.
2: That's a good point. I certainly don't see him as an and anarchist. And he's a populist as he's... well. Yeah, that's a good point. He's a populist. He's a uh, an optimist. Well, I wouldn't say an anarchist.
1: But again, born into privilege as well. Yeah. It's weird how these two figures, born into privilege, can uh, can be um, populous at the same time.
2: Yeah. Well, I guess people take anybody who seems strong or compassionate. I don't know what it is. I don't know how to link those two, honestly. But it's an interesting one.
0: Evan, uh, we're going to shortly wrap it up. Uh, but I am going to ask you kind of uh, one final question. Maybe Matt has another final one as well. Um, but I'm going to go back uh, to something that you kind of said earlier uh, when you started talking to us. Um, you gave us a definition of anarchism that was really related to praxis. Praxis kind of driven, what you're doing. We've morphed it into the aesthetics and the politics of anarchism. But here, here's kind of the, the, the if you could do it, the nail in the coffin. What does the left or anarchists, what do they need to do today? What can someone who's listening Maybe it's an easy action. Maybe it's a big action. Maybe it's a book that you were going to recommend. I don't know. But if you want to be an anarchist, you'd like kind of what you've said, what do you do?
2: Very good question. One which with I, I've been grappling with for the last few years of my own life. What do I do? It's something I've been very concerned with and very uh, disparate about. Something that I've taken to work, all I can offer is my own experience, I guess, but something I've taken to work is just further education, you know, trying to figure out what it is uh, that's going on out there, what's happening right now. And what it is that uh, backs up my own beliefs in the world. So stuff that I'd I'd recommend reading for these sorts of things. I recommend a lot of these books by Graeber I'm talking about. The Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology, um, Direct Action and Ethnography. I'd recommend the James C. Scott book, Two Cheers for Anarchism. Just to see what sorts of things these entail because they exist in your day-to-day life. It's just not something that you necessarily connect to the politics of your life yet. And lastly, uh, just a podcast recommendation, if I might, something I've been listening to lately, um, The Intercept, uh, the uh, news organization which helped Snowden put out his uh, his revelations run by uh, Glenn Greenwald and um, Jeremy Scahill. They put out a, a podcast recently called The Intercepted, which has been fantastic, I've thought, so far, hosted by Jeremy Scahill, host, uh, and he's Glenn Greenwald on, he has Naomi Klein on, he's had Snowden on. Uh, we had Julian Assange on a couple of weeks ago and it's really interesting stuff. It's not a perspective which I, you know, unanimously agree on. Um, but just a really interesting take that one doesn't find naturally in the media.
0: Great. Well, um, again, thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, you've given us a lot to chew on, um, I'm going to give you the rundown on if you're listening and you've enjoyed something that Evan said, or maybe you haven't enjoyed one of the questions that Matt and I have had for him. uh, We want to hear from you. You can reach us uh, on Twitter and that's at, the SimPod, that's the underscore S I M underscore P O D. You can send us an email at semi intellectual at gmail.com. Our website is thesim.podbean.com. We are on iTunes and Stitcher. So please subscribe, leave us your ratings and reviews. It really helps the show. And uh, we're gonna be back with some uh, recommendations from Matt and Phil. Yeah, we're yeah, gonna be I got back. some recommendations I can't. Yeah, okay. yeah. right. Let's thanks, Evan. Thanks, thanks, Evan. Thanks, guys. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> welcome back we're here um for some recommendations um matt i I saw you messing around on your phone what do you have to recommend for us uh Uh, on today's episode
1: so two podcasts this week um the first one is called astonishing legends believe it or not um it's a it's, it's kind of a long form podcast it's like the episodes are like an hour an hour and a half long but um it's like rational conspiracy theories and treasure hunts and um yeah, it's just they do a really good job with it, and it's not like other kind of conspiracy shows where it's just you know a whole bunch of theories. It's these guys actually pick it apart and use maps and and try to get to the bottom of things. So they have um like a three parter on Oak Island, which is a got a TV show now. Um, there's a, I just got through the Knights of the Golden Cross, which is this like racist white supremacist group that formed after the Civil War, and they buried like um, what was his name the. President of Mexico, the Na- Napoleon the Fifth or whatever the hell that guy's name is. Anyway, oh Maximilian, sorry, yeah Maximilian's treasure. They buried it all over America, so it's like weird episodes like this, and they got like well over a hundred episodes, and it. it's really
0: good. Neat. And what's the second one?
1: Um, this is one that others might know, but it's called "On the Media." Um, it's by WNYC, um, and it's uh, it's hosted by. Brooke Gladstone and some other guy. I can't remember his name right now. Garfield. Thank you, Bob Garfield and Brooke Gladstone. Um, Yeah, and it's um, really in-depth, kind of a social science-y approach to media studies. So it's um, always current. It's always on, like, relevant topics. And they have a new episode every week and sometimes little bonus episodes throughout the week.
0: Nate and Evan, uh, we've kept him around. Uh, He has some recommendations for us as well. Uh, What are they?
2: Yeah, if I could just keep throwing out recommendations. Um, just two quick ones, if you guys don't mind. I've got uh, this guy. He's a writer from the UK. He writes for Vice primarily, but he's written for the New York Times, the Atlantic, etc. His name's Sam Chris. He's a uh, a Marxist fella uh, over in London, I believe he lives. One of the most beautiful, brilliant writers I've come across in a long time. Maybe the most brilliant contemporary writer I, I can uh, think of right now. Oh. He's got a blog called Idiot Joy Showland. He's got a podcast called Whale Vomit on the Baffler. Um, Really interesting guy. His writing is just out of this world, so I heavily recommend everybody go and check him out. And then one which isn't uh, about leftist politics is um, if there's any other hockey fans out there and you're tired of hearing Don Cherry talk about Russians as though they're just hot dogs, um, there's a podcast run by a a young Canadian guy named Dmitry Filipovich called the hockey pdo cast which is fantastic it's uh, kind of delves into the numbers is heavily uh, into hockey analytics for those folks who uh, enjoy that kind of thing um it's
0: not i don't take it at, uh, as gospel but it's a really interesting perspective and he's so great for, uh, from anarchism to hockey uh <laughs> evan is well-rounded uh, well listened and well read So that's uh, a little compliment to (laughs) you you. guys. (laughs) It doesn't happen often on the show, but when we do it, Um, I do have one uh, quick recommendation. There's a lot of these books out there. uh, They kind of, um, you know, they, they, they got you by the, well, you know, the short and Stub- Curly's, yeah. Um, so, and you know, we are consumers of books, but this one is uh, is a good one. It's called "How to Write a PhD in Less Than Three Years: A Practical Guide." It's by Stephen Harrison. Um, really, it's down to earth, well written. Um, gives you kind of point form uh, and not so point form how to really get through it. Um, so, yeah, that's my recommendation for uh, for all those people aspiring. Cool. Be a, a PhD um, again. I want to say thank you to all our listeners. Um, do you guys have anything else to add?
1: Uh, thank you, Evan, for joining
2: us on oh, today's yeah, yeah, episode. <laughs> oh yeah, thank, thank you, Evan. Yeah, thanks. I yeah. Uh, I am a, I'm an aspiring listener and, uh, and and quite enjoyed this uh, this program. Thanks, thanks. guys. You yeah, you added
1: a lot to it. It was very interesting. I thought.
0: Yeah, and if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or considerations for Evan, uh, you can reach us on Twitter at SimPod. that's the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D. You can send us your queries through email at semi-intellectual at gmail.com. That's all one word, semi-intellectual. Uh, our website is thesim.podbean.com. Please subscribe to our iTunes and or Stitcher uh, RSS feeds um, you know the more listeners we have the more comments we get the better the shows will be um, and I think that's it for tonight all right we'll take it easy folks thanks for listening keep classic some so make your, brain, take some facts, yeah. make your hair